Well, good morning. If you're new to Faith Bible Church, I'm Pastor Steve. I haven't been here for a couple of weeks, but it's good to be back. And we are starting a new series this morning in what Bible teachers refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in your New Testaments. And I would encourage you as we are working through this material... It's a good uh, thing to do just to sit down and read those three chapters at one sitting. Five, six, and seven. It just helps you get a flow for what Jesus is doing here as he teaches early in his ministry. As we begin our study, I want to just once again set Matthew chapters five, six, and seven into a very broad context of the teaching of scripture. Remember with me, as our Bibles open, we find... God creating man and woman and the earth. And God created the garden where he would commune with man and woman. They were close. They would talk together. And then man and woman sinned. And it marred God's good creation. But clear back in the book of Genesis, God gives us a glimpse into the fact that he is going to bring his good creation back to its good state. And as scripture starts to unfold through the Old Testament, we start to see a reference to a kingdom. A kingdom that will be God's kingdom. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find a promise to David that his descendant will sit as an anointed king on David's throne forever and ever over this kingdom. Other Old Testament prophets write about this upcoming kingdom. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel. All pointing to this time where things will be made right. Where God's righteousness will prevail. This time when the anointed king will sit on David's throne forever. Remember with me that the Hebrew word that refers to the anointed king is the word Messiah. Our English word is simply a transliteration of that, meaning they take an English letter and bring it straight across to the Hebrew letter, so the Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek equivalent to that is the word Christ or Christos. And so what is promised throughout the Old Testament is that the Messiah will come. And by the time we come to the Gospels, in everyday life, people are talking about Messiah coming. We know from John 4 that even a Samaritan woman, who's not even an Israelite, knew that Messiah was coming. This summer we looked at the prophet Joel. And the prophet Joel told Israel that they should repent because the day of the Lord was coming. And in the day of the Lord was a time period where 
The Lord would return in judgment for those who stood in rejection of him, but he would deliver his people and then institute this kingdom. Following that, we looked at five psalms that are labeled royal psalms that talk about this Messiah who will reign over this kingdom. This fall, we looked at Second Peter, where Peter too said, the day of the Lord is coming, make sure that you're living in holiness as you wait for this day. Why was it so important for the Old Testament prophets to charge Israel to repent, to be living for the Lord in light of the fact that the kingdom was coming? Why did Peter make such a big deal out of walking in holiness because the Lord's coming back and will set up his kingdom? Because throughout the Old Testament, it is very clear that for a person to be in the presence of a righteous God, they must be righteous. Only righteous people can dwell in the presence of a righteous God. Only people who are upright, only people whose lives are marked by rightness, as God defines it, can dwell in the presence of a righteous God. No one in Israel questioned that. Jesus, as we come to the book of Matthew, is shown to be the Messiah. The very first verse of of Matthew in chapter 1 verse 1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew goes to great lengths, and we're eventually going to work through this whole book, goes to great lengths to show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophets of this coming Messiah and this kingdom. So much so that when we see the ministry of John the Baptist recorded, Matthew shows us that even John the Baptist's ministry is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And what does John the Baptist do? In verse 12, it tells us of Matthew 4, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled into Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And down at the end of that section of verse 17, it tells us that Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message that John has been sharing in chapter 3. In John the Baptist's ministry, in verse 1, it says of chapter 3, In these days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness in Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of his heaven is at hand. John the Baptist and Jesus are continuing to carry the same message that ties all of the Bible together. That God is going to do a recreation that sin will no longer reign, that there is a kingdom coming that will be marked by righteousness. The Messiah will reign there. There'll be no sin there. And so as we come to the book of Matthew, Matthew shows that Jesus is the Messiah, that John the Baptist is preparing for Jesus' 
ministry in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then as Jesus starts his ministry, his message is to Israel. He's not talking to Gentiles here. His message is to Israel and his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom, I'm offering it to you. In fact, in chapter 4, a little bit later down, it tells us in verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The good news of the kingdom, this long-awaited kingdom where the Messiah will reign on David's throne, Jesus is offering. To the people of Israel. No one questioned the call to repentance that the prophets made. Or why a person needed to be righteous. It was clear in the Old Testament. Only righteous people can dwell with a righteous God. But here was the question. What kind of righteousness is it? Am I righteous enough to enter Messiah's kingdom? That's the question. Barbara and I enjoyed Christmas with our little granddaughters this year. Two of them are just one this month. It was that they're not really catching on to the whole gift thing yet. But our two-and-a-half-year-old definitely did. And Grandpa and Grandma Benton got our little two-and-a-half-year-old a dollhouse. Now, much to my sorrow, the dollhouse came with a note on the outside of the box that said, Assembly Required. <laughs> now, I am not mechanical. I am one of the least mechanical people I know. And I saw that, and my initial reaction was, let's wrap it and give it to my son and let him put it together for his daughter. To which my wife said, we can't do that. You can't just give this little girl a box. It has to be put together. And I was wondering, are we going to ask elves to come? So she said... Here's what we're going to do. You go hunt, I will put it together. And in six hours later, my wife put together the dollhouse. It's like four feet tall. It weighs like 60 pounds. Six hours. The other interesting thing is when she opened up the box, there are no printed instructions. Just pictures. That's it. Pictures. Now... For me, that's what I would need. I, I, if I tried to read the printed word in some technical explanation of how to put something together, I am just in a fog. I have to see it. And But this had no words. It was just pictures. Glimpses of how the bedroom should be put together, and the garage, it even has an elevator. It had a picture of how the elevator is supposed to work. What Jesus does for us here in Matthew 5 
is kind of like that. Because he gives us a series of pictures. Now, they're pictures painted with words, but very vivid pictures. He is going to show us righteousness. He is going to show us how a person who is right with God should be living. But in just instead of explaining it, he gives us pictures of it. That we can reach out and touch it in our minds and our hearts. We can see what righteousness looks like. Because that's the question. All of these listeners to Jesus are not questioning the idea that you have to be righteous to enter the kingdom. What they're questioning is, what is righteousness? Am I good enough? I think I am. I'm sure a lot better than that guy over there. So Jesus, knowing the hearts of his listeners, gives us a series of word pictures of how a person who is right with God should be living. These chapters are not going to spell out how a person can attain righteousness. These chapters are not going to give us a a uh, very uh, specific presentation of the plan of salvation. That's not what Jesus is doing here. These verses are not primarily directed to the church. The church is not even born until Acts 2. Here, Jesus is talking to Israel. And he's telling Israel, I'm offering you the kingdom that's been promised to you. It's been promised to David that his descendant will reign over a kingdom that's marked by righteousness. Here it is. I'm making you the offer because Jesus is proclaiming in offering the kingdom that he is Messiah. And in the process, he's answering the question that's on the hearts of people. Am I righteous enough? And he shows us the holiness of God. And what we're going to see is that the righteousness that Jesus is going to picture is not an external righteousness. You see, that's how all the religious leaders of the day are measuring if they're good enough or not. Externals. In fact, Jesus, in a very key verse in this sermon, in chapter 5, verse 20, is going to say this. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Who could be more righteous than a Pharisee, than a scribe? They do everything right. They're the most religious people we know. And Jesus is saying that unless I have a greater righteousness than that, I won't even get to go into the kingdom? That's what Jesus is saying. But instead of just saying it, he's going to show them what righteousness looks like. He's going to give them pictures. 
As this section opens, we notice in verse 5, chapter 1, these words. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we see here right in verse 1 that there's a reason why these crowds have formed And that reason is told to us in the verses immediately preceding chapter 5, verse 1. If you go back to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, it's said again in verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. People from all over the region have started hearing about this Jesus. It's early in his ministry. Some have seen, some have heard that he's healing people. And so they come in crowds. Surely, verse 1 here refers to the twelve, the newly appointed twelve, as his disciples who have gathered around him. But it's much more than that. There's many of the curious have come to hear Jesus and to see him work these great miracles. There's a reason why Jesus healed. And we know from Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, that one of the main reasons why he healed was to show that he is the promised Messiah, to authenticate his person. In fact, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took away our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That's a quote from Isaiah 53. Matthew understands that as Jesus was carrying on his healing ministry, that he was showing that he was that suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that he is the promised Messiah. And here we find large crowds gathering because of his healing ministry. Just because he healed, though, does not mean that everyone who followed after him believed. You see, a disciple is a follower And he had many here. But a true disciple has to move from curious to convinced in his person. We know from John chapter 6 verse 66 that some of those who follow Jesus stopped 
It says as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So we have a large crowd. Some may have early on in his ministry come to a point where they believe already that Jesus is Messiah, but many are curious. They want to see more. They want to hear more. And really what's on their hearts is this message that Jesus has been sharing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the underlying question is, Am I good enough? Is my righteousness a good enough righteousness to enter the Messiah's kingdom? So Jesus is going to begin showing them, giving them some pictures. And the first picture is found in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 through 12 in your Bible probably has a heading above it that calls this the Beatitudes. That's not a word that we use. It's actually an English word that's based on a Latin word for being happy. In the Latin copy of the scripture called the Vulgate, the Latin form of the English word Beatitude is used in that section. And so that heading has carried its way over into our English Bibles. It's all based on the word that's repeated all in every verse, in verses 3 through 11, blessed or blessed. That Greek word translated blessed can mean favored, blessed, fortunate, happy. Privileged. It's, it's, it's referring to receiving, in these verses, divine favor. It's receiving favor from God. And so here, in these pictures of what does it really mean to be righteous, Jesus gives us a picture of true righteousness. He gives us a picture to show us how a person who is right with God should be living. And we see in verses 3 and 4, the first picture. Righteous people see that they cannot stand before God on their own and they acknowledge their sin against God. In other words, in order for a person to be righteous, they have to realize that they're not. Now that seems counterintuitive. In order for a person to be truly righteous, they have to acknowledge that they're not. That's what Jesus' message is. He says here, blessed This person is going to have great favor, divine favor from God, are those who are poor in spirit. Now, if it just said poor, we know what that is. It means I'm broke. Well, to be poor in spirit is to be broke spiritually. Nothing available. To give to God that would in any way 
Make me deserving before him. Poor in spirit. The next part of the picture here is very tightly connected to being poor in spirit. It says those who mourn. The person who mourns is the one who acknowledges that they are broken spiritually and humbly bow before the one against whom they have sinned and pouring their heart out before him, confess it. The first picture of righteousness that Jesus gives us is this. Righteous people realize that they're not. We have a program here at Faith Bible Church called Awana. Awana is for children uh, right before grade school, up through the end of grade school, and it goes on. We have some students that continue to memorize verses as part of Awana clear up into high school. And the real bare essence of Awana is scripture memory. Children and students come and they, they have memorized scripture throughout the week. They recite that scripture and then talk with leaders and, and guides about how that scripture pertains to life. Believe it or not, I went through Awana. It's that old of a program. The problem is, when I went through Awana, I was not a Christian. My dad was a preacher, but I wasn't a Christian. People thought I was, but I wasn't. And inside, I was mad. I was mad that people thought I was a Christian. I was mad that my dad was a preacher. I was mad that I had to come to this Awana thing. And so I did nothing. I don't know if it's still this way, but when I was in Awana, there was a little paper booklet that you had to get through even to get the book. Some years, the year was almost done before I got through the little paper booklet. Most of my friends would have badges and pins, and I would have an Awana shirt with nothing on it. Blank. No badges, no pins, nothing. You see, I had no badges, No pins. Now, the religious leaders of the day when Jesus is talking would have been walking around with all their badges and pins. Not Awana badges and pins. It's not that old. But they would have walked around with all of their accomplishments, all the things that they had, quote, unquote, done for God. And they thought that their badges and pins made them righteous, made them right with God. And what Jesus is saying, there's not enough badges and pins to make you right with God. The only person who can be right with God is the person who's willing to acknowledge that they're not. The only person who can be righteous is the person who realizes and acknowledges that they're not righteous. That's Jesus' message. And as we see the New Testament continue to unfold, the Apostle Paul continues to develop this. 
And Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become useless. There's none who does good, there is not even one. That's how Paul put it. So Jesus is talking to an audience, asking the question, Am I good enough? Am I good enough to get into the kingdom? Jesus is offering it. Am I righteous? And Jesus gives them a picture. He paints one here. And the picture he paints is this. The only person who is righteous is the person who knows that they're not. As we come to verses 5 and 6, we see the second picture. The second picture that shows how a person who is right with God should be living. And in this picture, in verses 5 and 6, we see that the person who is righteous is yielded in their heart to the authority of God. And they have a desire for the things of God. That's what righteousness looks like. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth is another way of saying Enter the kingdom. Remember the kingdom that's promised in the Old Testament that we see come to fulfillment in the New Testament uh, coming to its conclusion in the book of Revelation is an earthly kingdom. We are not going to spend eternity in a cloud playing a golden harp. We're going to be material, physical, in a material, physical place on earth. Second Peter that we just finished tells us it's going to be a recreated earth. But on earth. And here Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom? You want to inherit the earth? Blessed are the gentle and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The word gentle, some of your Bibles may say meek. Some of them may say humble. The best way to understand this term as translated gentle or meek or humble is that It's a person who is yielded to God's authority. And the reason we can say that is because the Apostle Paul uses this term in reference to Jesus. It's not talking about somebody saying, oh, I'm worthless, God can never use me. It's not talking about somebody who's putting themselves down. No, it's talking about a person who's totally yielded to the Lord's authority in their life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 1, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul's saying Christ is meek. doesn't mean that he was down on himself or that he put himself down in front of others and say, oh, I'm worthless. No, it meant that he's totally yielded to the Father's will in his life. And here, Jesus, in this picture of Righteousness says the righteous person isn't trying to promote themselves. The righteous person is all about the Lord. 
The righteous person is all about yielding to God's authority in their life. And the righteous person hungers for righteousness. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They want to see rightness in their own life. They, they want to see uprightness in their own life. They want to live in a way that God would look at them and say, that is righteous living. And they want justice. They want to see God's justice, God's righteousness evident throughout the earth. They yearn for it. New Year's weekend, Barbara and I decided to go see our youngest son up in Minneapolis, St. Paul. He was not able to come home for Christmas. And uh, one of our married sons and his wife and their child were going to go with us. So instead of packing my six-foot-six son into the back seat of my Corolla with his wife and child, we took my pickup. So we went up, and on Saturday, New Year's Eve, Saturday afternoon, we were downtown St. Paul eating at a kind of a famous Italian market and grocery store. And we got there at 4 o'clock. I put money into the automated meter that gives you the little ticket till 5.30. It's about 5.28. And we're walking out to my pickup only to find that while we were eating, sometime between 4 o'clock and 5.30, somebody smashed into my pickup. $5,000 damage and drove off with no note. I was frustrated. Why would you do that and not do the right thing and leave a note so that your insurance company could take care of this and not mine? Why would you do that? And I probably just kept, under my breath, just kept saying that. And as I continue to process, I keep asking my question, why does stuff like this happen? I mean, this is a little thing. It's just money. And I keep asking my wife, Barbara, why does this kind of stuff happen? It's kind of a rhetorical question. And as I've tried to process this, one of the things that I think is is at least part of the answer is that it is a reminder to us from the Lord that we're not there yet. Justice isn't reigning. People don't always do the right thing. And and in, in, in a little microcosm, in a very trivial way, stuff like this just reminds us that this is not where our heart is, this place. We need to be yearning for something else. We need to be yearning for a time when justice will prevail. Yearning for a time when Jesus Christ will be reigning on the throne. And there will be no sin. There will be no drive-by crashes and all the other little piddly stuff that happens in our lives. And the big stuff that happens in our lives. Because righteousness will prevail. 
Jesus' listeners, probably from a variety of walks of life, crowds gathered on this hill. And they're thinking, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Well, you know, he keeps talking about the kingdom and we know Messiah is coming. And, and, and I, it sounds like it may be coming. Am I good enough to get in? And Jesus gives them a picture. And he basically says this. The only way you'll be good enough is if you acknowledge that you're not. The only way you can be righteous is if you come to grips with the fact that you're not righteous. The only way that you can be right with God is to realize that you're broken. And that's what the rest of the New Testament is about. It's reminding us that we are broken people. That we don't have a righteousness of our own. You remember we're going to get there in Matthew 5.20. Jesus said some pretty shocking words when he told his listeners, uh, by the way, the Pharisees' righteousness isn't good enough either. Which everyone's thinking, well then I'm in big hurt. Why? Because the only way to be right with God is to acknowledge that you're not. Righteous people clearly see their own sin and yearn for God. We are fortunate enough to have the rest of Scripture to know that the only way that we can have that righteousness is by having it declared. Jesus loved us so much. Through faith in Jesus. Because Jesus loved us so much, he saw our predicament that we can't be righteous. And so he died so he could pay for all of our sin and took it upon himself. And then rose again from the dead, proving that he's God. And through faith in him, we can actually become the righteousness of God. If you're here today and you don't know where you stand with God... I would encourage you, we've got a room right behind us called the prayer room. One of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church will be back there. And you can go back and say, hey, Pastor Steve said there's some material back here that I can get from you. And you can just take your own Bible and look up verses in your Bible that show you how you can know for sure that you're right with God. Or maybe you're here today and you're hurting. I encourage you to spend some time back in the prayer room at the end of our service. Father, we thank you for these initial pictures of righteousness that Jesus gives us. The picture that those who are righteous can only attain righteousness by realizing and acknowledging that they're not righteous. And a picture that those who are righteous yield themselves to the Lord's authority and aren't serving themselves. We thank you for these glimpses, for these pictures, for the picture of your holiness, and for us as Christians to be able to know that we can find that righteousness, not in our own merit, but through faith in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.